Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Today I'm talking to our favourite guest, Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, who is in Hong Kong. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? Hi, Dominic. And uh, I, of course, am here in London and uh, I've only just got back to London, having had a, a pretty strenuous last few days getting here from, of all places, Costa Rica. And uh, we'll be touching on that later in the program. But for now, Mike, uh, let's talk about our favourite subject, gold. You, you said you don't have a, a great opinion on gold at the moment, but uh, let, let's, let, let's just see what your thoughts are. Well, I think we may be setting ourselves up for something pretty interesting. We've, uh, we've had a nice rally off the low in February, um, and uh, gold has now moved uh, down from its uh, high, I think 1170 or so, 71 maybe, and we pulled back uh, pretty quickly to 1128. And uh, gold's gone into a little bit of a no-man's range here for the moment. Um, and uh, the next move uh, could be pretty interesting. Um, I know Jim Sinclair is talking about launching uh, a pretty explosive move over 1,200 to something quite a lot higher. It's not like uh, him to be bullish about gold. No, it isn't. <laughs> not at all. Just about all the time. Um, but he's, he's actually been uh, quoting Martin Armstrong. And uh, Armstrong's been talking about uh, an April correction followed by an explosive move in, in May. So, I mean, I can see the potential for this. Uh, but, you know, we've, we really need to gold to make a good bottom. What I'd, what I'd really like to see is I'd like to see that low around 1128, uh, which came on pretty heavy volume. I'd like to see that tested on light volume. And uh, if if we get a test without a further breakdown on heavier volume, I'll be buying some more gold. I have to say, I did do some selling up there when we were around 11, uh, 1171. Uh, I, I, in fact, I feel very lucky because uh, I have been carrying a substantial part of my gold exposure in a share called Fizz. The symbol is P-H-Y-S, and it's this broad uh, physical gold uh, fund. Uh, which I don't know if we've talked about it before, but it's got some very interesting features. Um, but um, what's been interesting about gold is the way that there have been a number of podcasts, um, you know, on Eric King's radio show, uh, King World News has been one of the main sources of these, where people have been talking about the fraud of the century or the greatest fraud in history or something. And I think those claims have been a little bit overblown, and uh, that may have been one of the things which has actually pushed the gold price up to these high levels. Mm. And uh, as you probably know, there's been uh, talk, and there have been sort of two or three main areas of concern here, uh, which I'll, I'll enumerate for you. One is the 100 to 1 ratio of, uh, between actual physical gold and the number of open contracts on gold. And I'd like to talk about that. 
uh, as one item. The second item would be, uh, you know, is there gold in the vaults? And uh, I think Eric has done a little bit of a disservice for his listeners and probably making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill there. Um, and, and the third one is, um, you know, to what extent is the gold price manipulated? And these concerns have been around for a long time, um, but they've come back into the public eye after the CFTC uh, hearings, which uh, happened uh, over the last month. And uh, I think you're probably getting the same thing as I am, quite a lot of chatter on the Internet about these issues. Well, I've had loads of um, emails from people asking me to write about it in in Money Week and talking about the manipulation and so on. And I just... Well, I think we need to be a little bit careful with GATA. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about gold. Um, I do think they have, a, as an organization, a desire to lift gold prices. Uh, I'm sure everyone in GATA is long gold and uh, has many friends who are long gold. So, And I do think they go overboard sometimes and grabbing a hold of news and uh, potential news items and using it as a reason to, to buy gold. But I do think we need to be a little, be a little bit careful with them. I, I'd really take my hat off to Jim Puplava, who has been very careful uh, about looking into this matter. And frankly, I think there's less uh, to God's claims than, than meets, uh, meets the eye, if you know what I mean. And I, maybe I'd like to just talk about two of those because... Uh, there's been, there have been a number of postings on GEI about this, and I'd like to perhaps just go into that a little bit. Um, yeah, wh one of them is uh, the 100 to 1 ratio. Now, um, Jeff Christian has been uh, interviewed a number of times, I think three times now, by Jim Puplava about this. And uh, he's been quoted and I think misquoted by Gata about this. Uh, a lot of people seem to believe that... Um, there are people who want to own physical gold and instead of holding the physicals have certificates and contracts from banks, uh, you know, which are evidence of the gold being in storage. And then when they look uh, deeper, they find that the gold isn't there. And uh, on Eric King's uh, podcast, uh, a couple of guys, uh, father and son, uh, Lenny Organ, I think, was the father or the son, was one of the guys that was interviewed. And he talked about how um, he went to the uh, vault of uh, Scotia Makata in yeah. uh, Toronto, I believe it was. And there was no gold there, almost no gold, and there was very little silver as well. And uh, Eric has used this as a uh, talking point for how uh, there might be a fraud going on and uh, that banks have been selling certificates of uh, gold way beyond the gold they have in storage. Well, there are a number of things about this story that bear some examination. Yeah. One is, I mean, how does a private investor get into the vault of uh, Scotia Makata? I really think it's likely, and this hasn't been confirmed, but I really think it's likely that he was shown the holding room yeah. And all these banks that deal in physical gold for private investors will have rooms where they warehouse gold for a few days before they send it out to their customers. And depending on the demand at a particular day or week, there may be a lot of gold or a little gold in there. But that's not the main place where they store, where they store their gold. They'll have several vaults where they store gold on the behalf of institutions. 
And those institutions will send in auditors um, at least once a year to, to make sure the gold is there. And the gold should be, uh, you know, registered and numbered and so forth. And Nick Barashev, who you have interviewed before on GEI, is one of the people that Jim Pupava spoke to. And uh, Barashev actually talks about how his uh, firm holds gold and has sent in auditors and he's totally convinced that Scotia McLeod does have the gold. Um, and others who uh, are involved in the storage business have confirmed this. So I do think a bit of a mountain has been made out of a molehill in terms of the storage issue. Uh, now, the 100 to 1 issue, I think that bears some examination as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I in the past, I've, I've run a business um, for Chase Manhattan, in fact, wherein I was selling over-the-counter derivatives. And um, my business at that time wasn't gold, but I subsequently got involved after I left Chase in a business where I was involved in packaging some over-the-counter gold and silver instruments for hedge funds and others. And um, what I can tell you is that from both experiences, that a lot of people will have over-the-counter positions on their books where they don't actually want or expect to have physical gold. And I'll give you an example. Um, if, uh, if I own options and I want to hedge those options, um, I will enter into certain transactions to hedge them. So I might be long a call option and uh, holding that for a speculative reason because I expect the gold price to go up. And then when it reaches a certain level, I want to take profits on that. And I can either sell out the same amount of gold or a smaller amount of gold, delta hedging my call position. Um, and uh, my intention in doing that trade is to lock in a profit on my call. The bank that I sell that gold to may have other transactions behind it. So there may be a chain of transactions which can be quite long two or three or four or 10 or 20 transactions long, where each of the parties in that transaction, uh, in that chain, have bought and sold gold for reasons of trading around their positions. And um, the thing is, in the over-the-counter market, the positions are not extinguished until the maturity date. Mm -hmm. So if I have a call option, let's say for December, maturity, and... Uh, I then go and hedge it by selling a gold over-the-counter, uh, over-the-counter gold, again, for December position. Both of those positions will be on my books because they will be with different parties. Uh, and even if they're the same party, um, the gold call is a slightly different instrument than the gold futures. So they don't perfectly cancel each other out. So... I'm in the middle of this chain, which, as I said, could be many, many banks in length. And those positions don't get canceled out until the maturity in December. Now, let's compare that with the futures market. If I have an uh, option on one side and a future on the other, well, both of those positions will stay in my books because they're not perfectly matching. But if I buy and sell... Uh, a December futures position through the futures market, 
the position will get extinguished when I sell it. Okay. Whereas if I buy and sell a December over the counter position, buying from HSBC and selling to JP Morgan Chase, I will retain both positions on my book until the maturity of the trades. So I hope that's a clear description of how these over the counter books grow in size and become, can become very, very large in relation to the underlying gold position. So you can easily have a position which is a hundred times as big as the underlying gold position. And a lot of the chain in between consists of professional parties who bought and sold positions. And they're never interested in the physical gold. All they want to do is receive the value of the difference between the purchase price at which they bought and the price at which they sold. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you know, this is a little bit complicated, so I'm not 100% sure how much of this is coming across. But um, the, the point is that um, because there's a very large over-the-counter position for gold, these very large chains of over-the-counter trades grow up. And there are many, many times the underlying physical position. And the over-the-counter trades will probably represent 80 or 90 or maybe even more than 90% of the open contracts. And um, the people who are in them, they don't want physical. They simply want their profit between what the price they bought and the price they sold. Okay? Absolutely. What we should do, Mike, in the future is, is get James Turk back on. You know, because James uh, is, you know, a paid-up member of GATA, and uh, we should have the two of you discuss this, because I think it would be very interesting. Yeah, it would be, uh, and, and, and let's do that in the future. I, the, the, the final point I want to make on that is there is a kind of interview, written interview, uh, Q&A that James and I did through Pixel on the website, and we talk about these matters a little bit, but a, a sort of live person-to-person -person talk would be much more useful because then we can get right to the level of detail and resolve this. And I think there are some interesting issues there about whether banks have permanent short positions in, in the gold market. I, I can't rule that out, but I, I, I haven't yet seen any, any evidence that I find convincing that there are huge permanent short positions in the gold market. What we see in the futures market is the size of the over open interest goes up and down uh, with the gold price. And so when the price is high, you'll get a lot of positions being opened up and the commercials will go massively short gold. But then when the price falls back, those gold positions get, the shorts get covered, okay? So the size of the gold position doesn't really grow very much over time. It's been fairly steady. It sort of breathes in and out with moves in the, in the futures market. And there's no evidence of a permanent long-term short in futures. Now, I think James believes that the, there is such a, an open position in the over-the-counter market. It would be very interesting to talk about what evidence exists for that. Yeah, I think James's other thing is that uh, James doesn't believe the gold is in Fort Knox. I think he thinks they've leased it out. Well, but that's a that's another subject altogether. Look, I can't say he's <laughs> wrong, um, but I, it would be interesting to hear what the evidence is. 
I, I think it's possible that some of that gold has been leased out, but whether it's all been leased out or not is another, another question altogether. Having said all of that, I, I'm pretty bullish about gold at the moment. I was looking for uh, some March lows, and if you draw a trend line up from uh, the October low of 2008, that major low, um, we're pretty much sitting on that trend line or just above it at the moment. And uh, I'm looking for a good move that will take us uh, into June and possibly above the old highs. Yeah, well, I could see that. Um, the, the, one of the reasons I think we need to be a little bit careful here is if we've had a kind of temporary push in gold because of fears of the physical uh, and pe people were buying because... They wanted to get their hands on physical, and that's lifted the gold price here for a couple of weeks. Then those trend lines could get broken, and 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 we so we need to be very careful. I mean, I, I've been, I'll tell you what I've done myself here because I, you know, I I went, I, I did get fairly aggressive with gold about uh, four or five weeks ago. We did a podcast around that time, so people may recall that, and I bought a lot of fizz, you know, the uh, the spot gold fund. And um, I basically have replaced a large part of my position with options. And the reason I did that was if we do break these trend lines and the gold price comes thundering down back to 1100 or lower, um, I'm going to be able to bear that and, and lose very little money and I'll be able to re-enter at a lower price. Um, and I also had the additional advantage of Fizz went up to 10%, in fact, 12% premium to its physical gold holdings. And, you know, that's just too big. At 4 or 5 6%, it makes sense. But at 12%, you're paying a lot. You might as well capture that premium and replace it with physical gold. So I'm really thinking about doing that. And as a temporary measure, I've replaced my Fizz position with call options on GLD because I am afraid a little bit that, um, that people have become a bit too bullish on gold. And if, if we don't get these imminent rallies that people like Jim Sinclair are talking about, some of the hot, uh, some of the keenness towards gold may fade away and we may see a bit of a drop. So it's a time really people, I think buying call options, and they're not terribly expensive, in the money calls are what I've been buying. I've been buying 108 calls on GLD recently. Um, it could be a bit of a safer way. I mean, if you're going to do it, maybe you buy some physical gold and you buy some call options alongside it. So you do have a bit of flexibility in case these trend lines are broken. Um, okay. I, I've just uh, come back from visiting a, a, a Costa Rica. I, I, went, I took my family out there, and while we were out there, we went to look at a mine. Oh, yeah. And uh, we had a bit of a nightmare getting back. I bet. Uh, I, I'll just... Well, I'll describe it to you. We 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 were we left San Jose, and the plan was to fly to Madrid and then from Madrid back to London. And uh, amazingly, Iberia. It, well, let's start it off. I was actually looking, staring at a volcano in Costa Rica erupting mm -hmm. uh, by night, and you watched all the red magma flowing down the side of the volcano. It was absolutely, you know, stunning. As the news broke about the <laughs> volcano in Iceland, and. Uh, so, and we left on, on Sunday night, and, uh, you know, we knew there was upheaval, but I was amazed that Iberia let us fly at all, because, uh, you know, I was hoping by the time we got back on Monday, things would have settled down and we'd be able to just fly straight on. Mm. But 
that wasn't the case. And I was amazed that Iberia didn't say to us, look, you're flying into mayhem. You should stay here in Costa Rica. <laughs> and I, I think it's because they would have had to put us up in a hotel and they didn't want to do that. So what actually happened to you when you arrived back in the hotel in the uh, airport in Madrid? What, what were you facing there? We had a pretty painless 11-hour flight from Costa Rica to Madrid. And then we got to Madrid and, you know, I was with my kids and, and uh, I was planning. I was trying to, you know, always get ahead of the crowd wherever possible to avoid. So your kids are quite, quite young. Are they, are they Nine and seven. Nine and seven. Right. And, uh, and my other half. And um, we got into Madrid and we got our bags and we, it wasn't possible to just check the bag straight onto the next flight because the next flight had been cancelled. So we had three hours in a queue to get to Iberia customer services. And while I was in the queue, you know, I just normally I'm, I, it's pretty clear to me what needs to be done. And it was just really hard to see what to do. Um, all the coaches and I had my mum and dad texting me from the UK with kind of news updates Gordon Brown had made this announcement, Madrid's going to be a hub, there's going to be a hundred coaches in Madrid. There were no coaches there. And there was rumour of one coach going to Brussels, and that was going to take 24 hours. And I just thought the last thing my kids want after a, after a um, you know, 12-hour flight is a 24-hour bus journey. In which, and, 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 you know, after having, it was, and it was just mobbed, and there was just people wandering around having meltdowns and with lost expressions on their faces. So, the, you know, the bus option was out. Then... Um, you know, I saw there were flights to Bilbao until, and to Santander, which are on the north coast of Spain. And I thought, maybe we can go there and get a ferry. So I got my dad to check out the ferries, but the ferries had all been booked out. But there was rumours of the Royal Navy sending ships over. But again, that was, um, you know, you were trusting to the Royal Navy. And, 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 and you know, it was just going to be a scrum to get on, that, on those ships. So I just thought, well, right, we're not going to go there. Can I just ask you, because, you know, other people may be in these situations... Uh in the future um what information were you getting from the airline were they helpful at all no they were absolutely shockingly bad and uh you know i've i've flown with tar rom air romania before the um uh lifting of the iron curtain and mm. i've flown with air sudan and mm. uh, you know air sudan's flight uh, fleet consists of one aircraft and uh, <laughs> when we were supposed to be flying from Egypt to back to London, this was in 1990, Air Sudan's aircraft had just taken off in an unspecified Asian location, was headed into Europe. So, you know, the, 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 the plane was nowhere near where it should have been. And Air Sudan were better than Iberia. Now, I know <laughs> Iberia was swamped, but even, I mean, they were just useless. And it, it, the reason was is nobody knew what was going on. Nobody was prepared. Iberia just kind of washed their hands of the whole thing. And, you know, I, I said to them, we got to the front of the queue, and I said to the woman, where, where do we... You had to queue up for hours before you could speak to anyone. And when we finally mm. got to the front of the queue, you know, I said to the woman, well, when can you next put us on a flight? And they booked us, you know, in a week's time. And, I, you know, mm. I stood there with my kids, and I was going, what are we supposed to do for the next week? Pointing at my kids. And we got this kind of Mediterranean shrug. And, um, you know, it was impossible to know, you know, what to do. And I just happened to see that there was a flight to Toulouse. And mm. I thought, well, Toulouse is in France. There's not going to be as many people in Toulouse. We've got to have a better chance of getting home from Toulouse. So I just got her to book us on that. Mm. And that was leaving that night. Mm. Then I got a text from my dad saying that the French railways were on strike. Uh, oh, so gosh. I, oh, oh, Christ. <laughs> so, so then... So I've got on this flight, and I just couldn't stand talking to this woman because we, we were just getting nothing out of her. And um, 
even though we'd queued for three hours to talk to her. So we, we went and got a taxi into Madrid town centre. And I thought, well, we'll go to Madrid station and we can at least hop on a train. Mm -hmm. There were no train tickets. There were no. There was not one free space on the train for five mm. days. Wow! So then, then I thought, right, we'll hire a car. I went up to the car hire place. No cars. They'd all gone. And anyway, you can't. It's really troublesome uh, hiring a car in one country and dropping it off in another. Sure. Um, eventually, we found someone who quoted us eleven hundred euros to hire a car to drive from Madrid to Calais. Wow! And. Uh, which is a 1500 kilometer drive so then i thought okay i went and t spoke to i thought there's an economic crisis in spain there must be somebody who's you know got a car mm. you know a two mm. liter diesel or something like that and is quite happy to have a couple of days work driving us up to calais you mm. know for free few hundred quid plus his expenses mm. and i thought so i thought well, where do you find someone like that so i went down and started talking to the taxi drivers because taxi drivers mm. have got their fingers on the pass more than anything and uh, all the taxi drivers, again, just nobody wanted anything to do with it. They all washed their hands of it. But one so, taxi so, driver... So don't, you, you're speaking Spanish at this time, is that right? I am, you, I'm lucky. I'm, I can speak Spanish. So, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was lucky. Good. So I went and... Uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, I suppose I, that's, a, that's a huge advantage that I had that, that uh, nobody else had. Because it's funny, you go to South America and Central America, they're very good about speaking English. But in Spain, they don't actually speak very good English. <laughs> But um, anyway, so and certainly the taxi drivers don't. Um, but anyway, I was talking to this other taxi driver and he said, I'll take you to Calais for a euro a mile. Mm. And I looked I looked at the um, at the uh, my, you know, iPhone to see how many kilometers, sorry, a euro a kilometer. And I, I looked at my thing to see how many kilometers it was from Madrid to Calais. And it was over fifteen hundred kilometers. Over my 1500. gosh. So <laughs> I was looking at, you know, fifteen hundred euros. So, you know, I, I was kind of prepared to do it. But then, you know, the kids were just really hungry and miserable. And my other half was going, oh, you're not going to we're not going on a you know, 15 hour drive now. So <laughs> so I let that option go. But but the problem was there was just so much uncertainty and you didn't mm. know what the outcome of any decision was. It was really hard to make a decision. Well, you and, know, this, uh, this this your story reminds me of uh, Gerald Salente's uh, story in the in the earthquake uh, down in Chile so and Tom O'Brien's uh, tales of getting out of New Orleans and I think what you're showing here is that people have to be able to think for themselves oh absolutely you, you couldn't rely on the government and you couldn't rely on the major major organizations so um, in the end uh, we, I, I started arguing with Louisa and we were just stood there arguing and this bloke came out of this hotel and he just said look stop arguing go and get a night in a hotel settle down calm yourselves down and um and it'll, you'll all have a wash have something to eat and you'll all feel better in the morning and i kind of thought yeah but my main instinct was we had to get away from madrid we had to get away from these crowds mm. Mm. so i said we i put us all back in a taxi and we went back to the airport and got on that flight to toulouse mm. and um i must say there was a huge sense of relief as we got out of madrid then we landed in toulouse and uh, you know, found a hotel, and the hotel had internet. So I was looking on the internet to try and book us on a train. Mm. Uh, the only train train from Toulouse to Paris was at six o'clock the next morning. So mm. we woke up at the crack of dawn, having had about four or five hours sleep. And remember, I've got kids, and we'd already had this twelve-hour flight. And we got on this train. We got to the. Uh, it wasn't. We got to the station, and I was able to just buy a ticket at the station from there all the way to Calais with a change mm. at Paris. 
So we got on the train, and the train was just glorious. It was a seven-hour journey to Paris, mm. and we mm. all just slept all the way and uh, woke up in Paris feeling very refreshed. A bit of a mad rush across Paris to get to the other station. Calais was a bit more crowded, but we, you know, we wolfed down some baguettes and uh, got, had a nice cup of coffee and then got to Calais. And then once we got to Calais, Calais was... Uh, they dropped us at Calais Fretin, which is actually 20 kilometres from the port, and we needed to be at Calais um, uh, town centre. And uh, all the English, you know, d didn't realise this. And so mm. loads of people got off and were trying to get taxis, and there was only four taxis to take about several thousand people. And, you know, there were storms oh and fights and arguments and all that. Yeah. But we stayed on the platform. Again, luckily I speak French, and I was able to talk to the train guard. And mm. uh, we found out that there was a train to Calais town centre in about... 20 minutes so we waited we got that we got to Calais town center there were buses laid on that took us to the ferry and at the ferry we had to wait an hour to buy our tickets an hour and a half mm. maybe to buy our tickets but we bought our tickets the ferries by the way uh were charging for one passenger uh, i think it was 50 euros and i managed to book a whole car and mm. four with four people in it last summer for 50 mm. quid so, wow. you know, they were charging for one person what, what you could last summer, you know, because they were exploiting the situation, but they weren't completely taking the mickey. Uh, anyway, we got we got the ferry and we got back to Dover. Mm. And then bizarrely, you'd think once we were at Dover, we would have been OK. But there was mayhem from Dover getting from the ferry to the um, mm. to the uh, actual exit of the of the ferry port. And also, I forgot to say, in, in Calais, after all that, they then made us go through the most rigorous security check and passport control <laughs> that you've ever been through. You think they would have waived that, but anyway, they didn't. Uh, we got to Dover, and then, of course, at Dover, um, there was some bus service had been laid on that was taking people from Dover to uh, back to Victoria, and they wanted mm. £25 a head for a bus ride for that, for that wow. uh, level, which is a lot of money. Uh, a particular, I mean, we were hemorrhaging money over the last 48 hours getting from one place to another. I don't know if we'll ever get any compensation or anything. I doubt it. But um, anyway, or the, maybe the government will print the money to pay for it. But anyway, in the, um, in the end, uh, I, was, I, just, I did my old trick again of rather than getting this bus that was going to strand us in Victoria at midnight and mm. rather than, you know, queue up for a taxi to get to the train station and, and get ripped off by British Rail... Um, or whatever their southeast trains, whatever they're called. Um, I, I, again, I did my trick of asking around, and I just found a minicab driver who luckily mm. was based near me, whose mm. fare hadn't showed up, and he'd been sitting there since for the last four hours waiting for his fare to show up, and he hadn't shown up. And uh, I was able to negotiate a, a deal with him, and he drive, drove us home. Um, well, and, uh, so how so long did this this journey take from uh, from Calais? Well, from, well, from oh, from Calais. It was the, the ferry was about an hour and a half, and mm. we were home by about eleven. But All right, so that, that that had a little bit of time. The real problem was they're getting out of Madrid, was it? The the problem was getting out of Madrid. Uh, you yeah. know, once we were out of that, you know, that, that the French train it took forever, but it was just we had space, we could sleep. It was just nice, but yeah, Madrid was mayhem, and uh, yeah. What did I learn from it? A, you've got to think on your feet. You've got to not do what everyone else is doing. Mm. Uh, and um, you've got to, uh, yeah, be prepared to improvise. And, you know, we were lucky. There were people on holiday who'd spent all their money. Mm. And they were stranded yeah. there with, with no money. And people were, like, camping in Calais and then being mugged. 
So there's uh, still there, there are still people down in, uh, in in Madrid trying to get out of Madrid. I imagine so. I imagine so. <laughs> and, and, and you know, waiting for Gordon Brown's promised buses to arrive. Uh. Oh well, I mean, what's all that about? What was a hundred buses? Madrid is going to be a hub, and all this. It, it, it just wasn't. It was just made. It was people walking around like zombies, rowing, people having meltdowns, tears. It, it, it really was chaos. Well, so do you, do you think, I mean, as you speak Spanish, do you think that if you simply got out of Madrid to another city uh, 50 miles away or something, that you get away from the chaos, you get away from the danger and the muggings and all that, and get your, your family to a place where, where, where you can be a little bit less stressed, that's the first step in solving the problem, is it? Well, yes and no. The, 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 the problem that Madrid had is it's a major airport. And all the planes that couldn't fly to Paris or Germany or uh, UK had been diverted to Madrid. Or, mm. and, and, you know, so, it, so Madrid uh, just got swamped. Yeah. And it, it, was, it w wasn't prepared for it. And it wasn't re didn't seem to be the Iberia or the Spanish authorities didn't really seem prepared to uh, deal with the situation once it had arisen. They just mm. had a kind of laissez-faire attitude. And um, so, you know, the, if you got outside, if you got 50 miles outside of Madrid, you still were relying on the main routes, you know, the main railways or the main ports or the main airports to get anywhere. So yeah. the, the main thing was to get to another travel centre that was <laughs> less swamped. And yes. Toulouse seemed like the best option. But, I mean, it was amazing. We got that flight to Toulouse. We, you know, we, 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 I just said, can you put us on that flight to Toulouse? And she typed it in, and there was space on the flight. And we got the flight. So, well, he, so uh, what's, what's amazing with that is that other people... Nobody had, else thought to go to Toulouse. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they didn't know where it was. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was... I think they were just scared off because they'd heard about the, the French train strike. But, but luckily, we managed to get around that. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's quite an amazing story. And uh, w what do you think is going to happen now? Because, as I understand it, there might be a second wave of volcanic dust uh, about to be released in the air. And although the planes are flying again, they might be grounded again before long. Well, they, they just can't ground the planes for this long because um, the, it, it, the, the economic upheaval is too great like all the taxi drivers here in the uk are all, they're, they're all penniless they've got no money because mm. there's no trade going to the airports all the mm. businesses that surround the airports the hotels the restaurants the car parks it's it there is real economic upheaval going on and i know that you know effectively health and safety had said you cannot fly this volcanic dust is dangerous and after they'd made that claim that it endangered lives nobody was going to mm. put their hands up and say actually it's not that dangerous uh, because you know, there would just be too much blood on their hands or potential blood on their hands. But mm. the air, airlines did the next, the only thing they could, which is to fly their presidents on mm. test flights and put their presidents up there and, mm. and you know, say, look, it's fine. And uh, British Airways did it, Lufthansa did it, and um, I think KLM did it. Mm. And, you know, that's about as much as they could do. But, you know, I, I don't think the, the actual dust situation has changed. I just think there's just too much economic pressure uh, for for uh, on the health and safety but there's a real kind of battle of of 
of regulation against free market forces going on. And, and eventually, you know, we, we are, as, I, as we record this on Wednesday morning, I think we hit some kind of tipping point overnight on Tuesday yes. night. So and people will, will, will be willing to bear the risk, the, the airlines in the country will, uh, in order so. to, to uh, prevent the economic but, damage that's starting to take hold. Absolutely. But all you need now is for some kind of uh, airline disaster to happen. I mean, heaven forbid. But it, when that happens, then then then, you know, the proverbial really hits the fan. Well, you know, I think some people on GEI and other places have been forecasting a you know, decline in air travel. Uh, no one could have predicted that uh, it would have come uh, so quickly and uh, maybe so temporarily as well. But from such such a strange uh, event as as a volcano uh, erupting. Well, um, and, and I tell you what, just very quickly on, on. I mean, one thing why we chose to go via Madrid is because I couldn't handle changing planes in America and going through <laughs> all the um, all through all the rubbish they put you through of having to, you know, go through immigration when you're just changing planes. And probably so, wise to avoid that. But I mean, what, and, and there I know other loads options? of people talking yeah. to loads of people. They all travel via Madrid for that very reason. So. The, the U.S. regulatory authorities need to take a look at themselves and their transport policy of making people go through immigration when they're only changing planes uh, because they're losing loads of custom for their airlines and, and their airports. Yes. Well, I hope, I, I hope they can improve on that because the U.S. could use the business, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. with its economy in, in, uh, in some stress right now. But, you know, there's another thing here which is a little bit off the topic, but uh, maybe it's part of a, a bigger topic, which is what is going on with the Earth? I mean, there have been four major earthquakes this year. Um, yeah. In this conversation already, you've mentioned two volcanic eruptions. Yeah, uh, well, the, the, the volcano in Costa Rica was, was ongoing. That, that's not a new thing. That's been erupting for years. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, I mean, you, you say that nobody could have predicted this volcanic eruption. Or, or Sorry, you didn't say that, but, I mean, a lot of people will say that. But there is this guy who said at the beginning of the year there are going to be, was it eight major earthquakes this year? I think he said six. Six. Yes, I mean, and he mentioned... That's an astonishingly off-the-wall prediction. Yes, he mentioned, and he mentioned specific locations, um, some of which have already happened. Uh, his, he's missed a little bit. I don't think he mentioned Chile, but he mentioned countries near Chile. And he did actually mention China. We've just seen a major earthquake in China. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is in the papers. What's his here. name, this guy? Um, well, he goes under the moniker of Spirit Man. And there's there's a thread on GEI. I'll publish a link to it. Okay. But uh, it, it, I think what's, maybe what's underneath this, and you know, I've been reading some really strange things recently and listening to there's some rather bizarre podcasts on the web, and I don't want to go into all that, but I, I do half wonder if there may be some kind of major geo, geo, geograph, geological event um, about to happen to the Earth, and this is some kind of an early warning. I mean, there has been a long time people have been talking, talking about the potential for a pole shift in the year 2012. You know, if we keep seeing this sort of dramatic action with earthquakes and volcanoes, maybe we are headed towards something major to the Earth's surface. Uh, it has happened before. These things are cyclical. Um, 
you know, there may be something to it. So I, I think that's probably a somewhat taboo topic that, that needs to be discussed a bit more in, in the mainstream press and, and maybe on places like GEI. Um, you know, there, there may be something to it. Well, there, there, there are some that would say it's to do with, you know, it's caused by man and, and uh, it's to do with global warming and, and that whole syndrome. But, I mean, the, 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 this is the coldest winter I've ever known. And um, I mean, I agree that there does seem to be something going on. And the, the amount of predictions for the end of the world in 2012, be it Mayan uh, or Martin Armstrong or, you know, there's a load of cyclical market um, predictions that point to some kind of climax then. Uh, I know Robert Prechter's Elliott wave is, is pointing to some um, kind of turning point around then. But I, I do know... That and, and I know Arch Crawford's talking about it. In fact, he's talking about it later this year. Um, you know, it is a bit off the wall and it is left field. But you know, we when the stock markets were melting down in two thousand and eight, I went down to my local cash and carry and spent over a thousand pounds on essential supplies. Mm -hmm. And I kind of mocked myself afterwards because all it did was get me a problem with mice in the shed. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I, I think it. There's there's really something to be said because you don't if you're in that if you're in that Madrid situation and there are just hordes of people uh, and and you know wandering around you've got to be able to get away from them mm. and you know it really probably pays to have you know a couple of tanks worth of petrol or diesel uh, mm. supply ready so that you know if you need to make a quick exit somewhere in the car you know funds food. Even a even a uh, some kind of accommodation in the middle of nowhere. It really, you know, it, it it is. It does sound absurd and 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 mental and extreme. And you know, people laugh at you if you if you bring these kind of things up in 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 polite society. But but it it, it does pay to have an escape route. Well, you know, I'm I'm going on holiday myself, uh, not very far from here to Kuala Lumpur, and uh, I think after this conversation, I'm going to bring a little bit more cash with me because. If for no other reason, I'll have a bit more flexibility if something does happen. Yeah, uh, I'm not expecting anything to happen in KL, but you know who can who can know what to expect. So yeah, I think people need to be prepared, and they need to think for fast, and they need to think on their feet. Well, they do. I mean, I had a credit card with me that had a slight slight slit, uh, you know, a slight break, and the as each day grew went by that. That slit was getting bigger and bigger, and it was headed towards the magnetic strip. And I was terrified that the that the credit card was going to stop working. And uh, you know, then we really would have, well, we wouldn't actually, because I had taken out a load of cash to hedge against that. But but you know, we could have been in trouble. That the, the you know the credit card saved me. My plastic saved me. Well, that's th there. You go um, saved by plastic. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, anyway, I think it's 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 really um, an interesting lesson, and I'm really happy to hear, Don, that you've come back and you're safe and sound in the UK, and your family's back uh, back at home. Yeah, and, well, it, uh, it took us. I would say it took us about thirty six hours, and given that you know we were we were wandering around Madrid on uh, on Monday, and there were people who'd been been there since the previous Thursday. You know, so they, they'd already been there four days. And, you know, so I, I think it, I, I'm, I'm quite proud of myself for having got us back that quickly. You might be still sitting in Madrid waiting for one of Gordon Brown's buses to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are people doing that, just sitting there. 
And uh, yeah, anyway, well, mental. It's crazy times we live in. But uh, it was a wake-up call, and and uh, you know, fortune favours the prepared. And, and and we we weren't prepared, but we were able to improvise. But uh, anyway, I mean, you know, uh, if there's one thing, you know, one message, it's or three messages, I'd, I'd repeat them. <laughs> don't rely on the authorities. Don't mm. rely on large organisations, but rely mm. on yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, have an have an exit plan. Sounds good. Sounds like a good uh, good advice. So maybe we should call this one "Have an Exit Plan." <laughs> well, I'm going to call it "Gold Price Manipulation and an Exit Strategy." There you go. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right, Mike. Well, thanks very much uh, for for participating in the show, and uh, I'll get this up as quickly as possible, and and we'll talk again soon. Well, it's been a great pleasure, and um, you know, I'm looking forward to the next uh, conversation and. Hopefully it'll be uh, with less dramatic uh, circumstances for the two of us. <laughs> okay. Plug your website? Please. Yes. Um, well, obviously we'll put up a thread for this, and I'll, I'll get some charts and relevant links. Uh, people can find the website, globaledgeinvestors.com. Excellent. Michael Hampton, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 